2: Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on Us. Mintmobile.com switch.
1: Upfront payment of forty-five dollars equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over forty gigabytes per month face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty P. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG.
3: A lot can happen in three years. Like a chat bot, maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term. Plans underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: The following podcast contains explicit language and content that may not be suitable for all listeners. New allegations.
4: Shannon is lured into doing this particular tryst, and she's shown an envelope by the man that looked like it was stuffed full of money. And he tells her, there's $1,000 in there. It's for you and your family no matter what happens tonight. With far-reaching implications. She said that she would service Rex Uriman over 20 times and that he was a serial user of sex workers. He would sometimes have them come two at a time to his house. And his wife was home upstairs.
1: A surprising move by police commissioner Rodney Harrison.
4: I'm very pleased that Commissioner Harrison has seen fit to open his mind and and to do what I'm suggesting has been done, contrary to all those who have come
2: before him. If people have a reluctancy to come forward to law enforcement and they want to go to John Ray, then it's important that we take this information and then we follow forward with uh, furthering the investigation.
1: With political consequences,
5: Rodney Harrison's days are numbered in Suffolk County. He's getting fired. He's gone.
1: From ID and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled. Long Island serial killer. On Wednesday, October 18th, John Ray, in his signature fedora and colorful tie, gave a press conference outside of his office on Long Island. For those who may not know, John Ray is the attorney for the estate of Shannon Gilbert. Shannon was the victim whose disappearance and subsequent search for her led to the discovery of 10 sets of remains found along Ocean Parkway. The victims associated with the Long Island serial killer. John Ray has been an outspoken critic of the Suffolk County Police Department through the years. So it was quite surprising to see standing next to him, none other than Suffolk County Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison. We'll get into what his presence there tells us about the task force and the investigation later. If you're not caught up on our early episodes, please go back and listen to them. If you are up to date, well, then we want to dive into the information provided by John Ray. It involves a sex club two of the Long Island serial killer victims, Rex Heuermann and his wife. Should the allegations prove to be true, it would paint quite a different picture of the Huermans than we've been led to believe. There is a lot to deconstruct, so let's get started.
4: Good afternoon, everybody. We're here today because new information has arisen in this case from witnesses who were so far unknown. Those witnesses, of which there are four, have given us statements, two of whom have given us affidavits regarding this case, regarding Rex Eurman and Shannon Gilbert and Karen Vergata.
1: Four witnesses whose allegations have been vetted yet still need to be verified by police. We reached out for comment to Michael Brown, defense attorney for Rex Eurman, as well as attorney Robert Macedonio, representing Asa Ellerup, Huerman's wife. At the time of this recording, we have not received any comment. Macedonia is quoted by Newsday as dismissing the John Ray press conference as a publicity stunt. Quote, it's a desperate attempt to stay relevant in this case that has nothing to do with him, end quote. Let's start with the two witnesses who have not yet provided a legal affidavit, the third and fourth witness. Their stories are shorter and a little easier to address
4: the third witness contacted me from oklahoma city oklahoma and that witness clearly recalls being picked up she was a street walker she gets picked up by rex Euerman in queens and he drives her into a park in flushing where he makes us keep her head down at all times commit oral sex and then he has a pistol in his hand and tells her get out of the car or i'm going to kill you and don't do anything except what I tell you to do or I'm going to kill you. So she gets out of the car before she does. He tells her, I want you to pick up another customer. She gets out of the car and immediately pulls up another SUV and a man driving it, an African-American man. She gets in the other guy's car and the driver, Rex Hewerman, follows the car. She panics and pulls the wheel because she sees a cop car coming and the cop stops him. The cop then goes back, talks to Rex and the other driver who gets out and walks back. Cop comes back and tells her, lady, if you want to make a complaint, you have to go to the precinct and drives away. That's her story. She refuses to have herself identified. I know her name. I know her address. I've given it to the police. They're aware of it. And presumably they're investigating it. This
6: is a
1: witness statement that has not been verified. And honestly, after all these years, I'm not sure it can be, which may be why this witness doesn't wanna come forward publicly. This witness may also have put her life as a sex worker behind her and wouldn't want her current associates to know her history. But let's assume for a second she is truthful in her statement. It could tell us a few things. One, if the story is true, it shows Rex Huerman used a gun to subdue and manipulate his victims. We've previously speculated that he may have used guns to get the victims to do what he wanted them to do. While none of his victims had gunshot wounds, his large gun collection seems to insinuate that he would certainly know his way around a firearm. This witness statement is the first one that could confirm that hypothesis. Number two, again, if the story is accurate, it lines up with the behaviors attributed to the killer when it comes to taunting. The phone calls the killer made to a victim's family playing with their emotions, holding his power over them. It goes hand in hand with scaring the sex worker for his own enjoyment.
4: The fourth witness, she comes from another state. She was a sex worker for many years, back in the time when all of these killings were occurring. And she serviced Rex Ureman. She said that she would service Rex Ureman over 20 times and that he was a serial user of sex workers. He would sometimes have them come two at a time to his house and his wife was home upstairs and in one instance got very angry at one of the sex workers because the wife believed that the worker had stolen an iron for ironing clothes and had it in the car with the driver. So the driver had to get out, everybody had to search the car, there was no iron. But the wife knew about it and knew about obviously what was going on in order for that to happen. She says that in her experience with Uriman, he was never impolite, he was always nice, he was always funny, he treated her well, and there was no violence. But certainly had contact with Rex constantly for a period of several years.
1: This witness statement also hasn't been verified, so we have to keep questioning. It is interesting because it paints a very different picture of Rex. Never impolite, not violent. The big reveal in this statement is obviously the allegation that Asa, Rex's wife, appears to be aware of Rex hiring sex workers and well aware that he was bringing them to their home. The anecdote about the iron is so specific and so odd, one could wonder who would even come up with that. It's worth noting that nothing in this witness's statement is illegal other than the hiring of sex workers, but there are no allegations of assault, intimidation, or violence that's not the case for the next witness statement. This one involves Rex Huerman and Shannon Gilbert. Suffolk County police has said that while Shannon was found along Ocean Parkway and last seen in the exclusive gated community of Oak Beach, they believe Shannon died from quote unquote misadventure. In other words, they believe that she ran into the elements at night while under the influence and she died. They can't explain exactly what happened But they don't believe she died at the hands of another human. For that reason, Shannon Gilbert's case has always stood next to the other cases, forever linked but not connected. With the arrest of Rex Heuermann, that distance grew larger until John Ray presented the following witness statement, a witness who did in fact sign an affidavit.
4: This woman is not a sex worker she's not looking for a book or money or the usual things that you're hearing about out there none of that but she came forward because she's very disturbed about what she knows after she also saw Rex Eurman on television and Shannon Gilbert here's her story she is a, a banker by day and at night she worked extra in Suffolk County as a taxi driver to take care of her family. She is called from her dispatcher to go to the Sayville Motor Lodge on Sunrise Highway. And that there's a girl awaiting her who's locked in a bathroom and will come out if she flashes her lights and beeps the horn. She goes there and does that several times, it doesn't work. But then suddenly a giant man who fits the description of Rex Euroman comes out and he's covering his face with his arms So he can't be seen, and he runs to a van or an SUV right nearby that's parked. She continues to flash her lights and beep her horn, and out comes a girl, crying, shaking, very upset, and gets in her car. There they talk for a while, and then eventually they drive to the Ronkonkoma, I believe, Ronkonkoma Railroad Station, so that this girl can go back in to New York City. This girl was a sex worker who was servicing the big man. And the man had seduced her into coming to Sayville by several times over the telephone convincing her that he was just a nice man who was going to help and work with her to help her family, her mother, her sisters, and her boyfriend. This girl turns out to be Shannon Gilbert. Now, Shannon is lured into doing this particular tryst, and she's shown an envelope by the man that looked like it was stuffed full of money. And he tells her, there's $1,000 in there. It's for you and your family no matter what happens tonight. She looks in the envelope when he goes to the bathroom and it's stuffed with paper. And so she panics and realizes something's wrong. He had become very aggressive, very angry. She goes in the bathroom, locks the door, and calls to get a cab. And that's how she comes out. They speak for over an hour. So the driver knows her well. And notices that she has a drooping eye, which is characteristic of Shannon. And so she notices that, and it helps her to remember Shannon when she sees her later on. Several days or weeks later, it's not clear. This is all occurring in the fall of 2009. The driver gets another call from the same dispatcher and says that there's a man who she's to pick up right off of Exit 59 in the expressway. He would be at a bar that was there. She goes there, pulls up on a side street between the bar and a house right next to it, and then she sees to the right of her a man, a huge man, rising up, coming to the car. He's dressed in camouflage, and he jumps in the back seat, sits on the edge, and leans over and starts talking to her, and she's watching him very carefully in the mirror. And she recognizes him as the same guy that was at the motel a little while before. And she now knows him to be, she recognizes him from the media, as Rex Uriman. He says to her that he wants her to take him on a long trip into the woods. In other words, he changed the destination she had been told, which caused her immediately to become suspicious. She said, I'm not going on a long trip anywhere. And with that, he gets extremely angry and threatens to kill her and tells her, I already want to kill you. Just give me a reason and he had a gun, a handgun. She says, I'm not going anywhere at this point, point," and she turns off the car, and she says, you can have the keys, you can have my money, whatever you want, just let me go. With that, her dispatcher is on the radio, and he says out loud, we see you, we hear you, we can tell who you are, and the man panics, gets out of the car. She's then able to drive away she recognizes him very clearly to be Rex Ehrman when she sees him. So she's given us this affidavit as well.
1: There is more information in this statement that police should be able to track down and verify. While 2009 is almost 15 years ago, there are distinct locations and a taxicab dispatcher that could be corroborated. But until then, we have to be cautious. This allegation, in addition to fitting Rex Ewerman's description of being threatening and intimidating, really centers around Shannon Gilbert and a possible connection to Rex Ewerman. We don't think this means that Rex Ewerman is implicated in Shannon's death. Think about it. It would be an extreme coincidence that Rex Euerman was just waiting around in a gated community on that particular night to see a damsel in distress and take advantage of her. And at this point, no connection has been made between Rex Eurman and the community of Oak Beach. But it is possible for Rex Eurman, who was alleged to have frequented sex workers often, and for Shannon Gilbert, who around the same time advertised on Craigslist and worked on Long Island, as well as in New York City, to have crossed paths. In a previous episode of this podcast, we've talked to a former sex worker who met up with Rex Eurman. So it's not just possible, but plausible— The $1,000 promise of cash is also not new. A few years ago, we talked to a woman named Kritzia, a friend of Melissa Bartholomew. Rex Hureman has been charged with Melissa's murder.
0: I know she went to Long Island one time. I know she came back with money. I know she was happy. She was like, oh, not much. It was nothing, nothing happened. And like she made like a whole bunch of money, 600 or 900 or whatever. The way she described him, middle-aged white guy. Because if it would've been anything different, she would have specifically mentioned it. But
6: to her, it was just a regular guy, a regular job, just a regular thing.
0: Mostly those were our clients. I know that she told me that she had this date lined up and that he was gonna give her big money, like a G or something, and that she needed to go through that date. She said she had a driver taking her to Long Island. She just disappeared. I kinda already knew she was dead because she would've never just disappeared like that.
1: Is the $1,000 a reoccurring theme in these witness statements proof of credibility? Or could it be that the witness had seen that story somewhere and is connecting vague dots in her mind? That's for the police to sort out at this point. The last of the four witnesses, which was actually the first one that John Ray presented, has a lot of layers to it. It involves Karen Vergata. If you remember, she's the victim formerly known as Fire Island Jane Doe, that was just recently identified in August, not even a month after Rex Heuermann's arrest.
4: This is a witness who has every reason to have no bias, no interest in the case whatsoever. She was not a sex worker, is not a sex worker. And instead, back in the 1990s, she was what is known then and now as a swinger. She would have a sex partner and they would go to certain sex clubs in New York City where they would switch partners with other people of like kind. One of the most important places that they would go was called La Trapeze on West 27th Street in New York, right near Rex Ehrman's office. This was a notorious place for swapping, for switching partners. This particular woman was dating a police officer from New York City who was in narcotics, A detective and they would go to these swapping clubs at or about Valentine's Day of 1996 I believe the couple went to La Trapeze and I think it was on the wall at La Trapeze where an advertisement to go to a house in Massapequa Park for partying for switching for swapping she went with her boyfriend out to Long Island but before they went boyfriend picked up a woman in New York in the city who had apparently just gotten out of jail and she was disheveled and hungry and she was a sex worker. They went to Massapequa Park before they got there they stopped at a gas station and the girl who was with them expressed some apprehension about where they were going and why. That was all wiped out when it was pointed out that He's a police detective, so don't worry. No problem. They ended up going to Rex Uriman's house. In the house was the wife of Rex Uerman, and Rex Uriman and the, the other girl. The other girl, who we believe to be Karen Vergata. She disappears downstairs at the house. Rex Uriman disappears. And according to our witness and other witnesses I've talked to, when men are swingers with their partner very often they switch sexually they go back and forth between male and female and so your leaves the main floor and disappears either into another bedroom or downstairs it's not clear and the witness talks to Rex's wife she doesn't want to have sex like she had expected to occur because our client believes because our clients an african-american woman and Ella didn't like that so there was no sex between them as was originally planned instead the sex is between your and the other man at some point the witness goes looking for her partner and is kind of upset that he doesn't emerge he emerges and finally they leave and kind of in a hurry as they're leaving The witness points out that she could see in the window, looking out, the girl that had come with them. And she says to her partner, what are we doing? Are we taking her? And the partner says, don't worry, they're just playing a game. She stays there, no problem. With that, the girl runs out of the house naked and is running in front of the garage. And now the witness says, hey, shouldn't we be taking her? Something's wrong here. And the driver tells her, nah, they're just playing a game. Leave it. And they leave. She never hears about the incident again. She distinctly remembers Euroman. She also had intercourse with Euroman that same day. And she kind of you know, buries it. it, forgets about it. Until on TV she sees the picture of Karen Vergata. And she recognizes her and said, that's her. And she recognizes R- Rex Eurman.
1: Okay, so there's a lot here. Before we dive in, I wanted to talk to John Ray directly about why he felt this witness's story to be credible. Our conversation next. We'll also talk to two women who visited the swingers club, Le Trapeze. And later, we continue to investigate the investigation and examine what Rodney Harrison's presence at the press conference tells us.
2: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you.
1: In his press conference, John Ray laid out some explosive allegations, none more so than placing Karen Vergata, the victim formerly known as Fire Island Jane Doe, in the house of Rex Heuerman. I spoke with John about the credibility of the witness.
0: In terms of timeline for the witness who had the story, possibly about Karen Vargata, did she come forward after Rex Hewerman was identified, or was it Karen that sparked sort of the realization?
4: It was Karen that sparked the realization. She saw the other guy, recognized him, and it didn't apparently occur to her that there was anything wrong until she sees the girl. And she has a breakdown at that moment when she sees her goddess picture and recognizes it as her, as the girl that came with her that evening.
0: The possibility that Karen could have been at Rex's house is such an explosive revelation. And I feel like when I hear people talk about it, one thing I haven't heard anyone talk about that much is that your witness said that she was there with a New York Police Department officer.
4: Correct. She was able to identify the police Officer, We searched for that name and we found a variety of different people under that name, which is not unusual. And we pulled pictures of different individuals who had shared that name, showed her those pictures. She rejected each one, each one. And then finally she said, no, this is the one. This is him. So we know who she's talking about. And that too, to me, was a test of credibility. She's willing to say, that's him. She's willing to stand up and say, that's the guy.
0: As far as how that New York City police officer came to find Karen, was she already with him when your witness was picked up? Like, do you know anything about that?
4: I do, but it's not clear to me exactly what the evidence means and how it was done. So I, I'll leave that to the police. But what is clear, that young girl was in the back seat, and she had just been in a car accident, we found out. Of some kind where she was seriously injured and what was interesting about this woman who didn't know that was that she indicates and you see it in the affidavit that Vergata was sitting in the back seat leaning forward and to the right in other words in a pretty much unnatural position and apparently she had some damage done to her from the accident
0: in the affidavit the witness mentions a couple of things like the Christmas tree and the belt. And some people are arguing that those are things that have been made public. Right. So in that may undermine her credibility, maybe she's crafting this based on information she's read. Just, I'd love to hear you weigh in on that.
4: Yes, of course. You know, one of the obvious things that you check is, is she getting her information from some other source than her own mind? In other words, is she she crafting her story to fit what everybody knows or what everybody has seen on the Internet or in the newspaper? That's a big issue for me when I talk to them, of course, so I have to really work hard uh, at trying to vet that one way or the other. But on the other hand, if the Christmas tree was there, as she says it was, and the Christmas tree is also in the picture, what's inconsistent about that? Could she have taken her, her statement from the picture? is the question that would be asked. The answer is, of course, she could have. But did she? There's nothing that says that picture was taken at any time but the holidays. Whereas she's saying, no, when I got there, it's in February. She's certain that the event occurs in February. And the Christmas tree is still up, which sort of conforms with the neglect of the house. There are some things that she said that are interesting. And they have to be seen if they're true. But let's say she identified some object in the house. When the cops went in there and cleared out the place, was the object still there 30 years later? Maybe not. You know, was the room the same? Maybe not. You know, did it, this guy had an architect come in to redesign the place back in 2005, something like that. And he had a you know, professional architect to come in to look at the place to redesign it. So they may have made changes. I don't know. All I'm saying is it's hard to be sure about a lot of, the evidence. But she's very consistent and persistent in the core of the story. People can be cynical and say, ah, yeah, well, that proves nothing more than that she saw the picture. No, that proves that's a possibility. That's what it proves. But you got to then take all the rest of it into account and see whether or not it sounds like a truthful story.
1: The allegations made by the first witness at John Ray's press conference are quite explosive. Here's what they boil down to. Rex Huerman and his wife were swingers in the 90s, frequenting a known swingers club in Midtown Manhattan near his office. Rex and his wife would also host other swinging couples at their home. Around Valentine's Day of 1996, about the same time that victim Karen Vergata went missing, this witness places her at the Huerman residence. While not explicitly alleged, it insinuates that perhaps Rex Huerman, with the knowledge of his wife, may have done something to this victim. If true, this would make the Heuermans' home the last place she was seen alive. Again, none of these allegations have been officially corroborated, but both John Ray and Suffolk County police detectives vetted the witness and apparently felt strongly enough about the statement to present it to the public. So let's start with Le Trapeze. La is no longer a functioning club. It opened in 1980 and was only recently shuttered in 2016. In 1993, the owner was quoted in the New York Times as stating, quote, the club caters to professionals, mostly married couples, between the ages of 30 and 60, looking for sex with other couples, end quote. He also mentioned the club gave out free condoms. An anonymous online review from 2016 gives us a sense of the layout, quote, first floor as you enter has a nice large entry. To the right, couches overseeing a decent-sized dance floor, and more couches in front of a stripper's pole. Upon entry to the left, tables, chairs, food. There is a BYOB bar with free soft drinks all night. As you walk past the bar and through a hall, to the right and left are four private rooms with locks and a couch for those waiting for the room. Past the hallway to the right is a locker room with showers, bathroom to change, clean up, freshen up, get towels, and go have fun. Out the locker room straight forward and up a small flight of stairs is a nice size room with mattresses on the floor for open fun. Out the lockers to the left, you see a spiral staircase. But before you go up to the second floor, at the base of the spiral staircase, there is a very large orgy room where the hardcore people play. Up the spiral staircase to the second floor, is about five small size open rooms for couples and small group play, as well as two small rooms with sex benches for the voyeurs and exhibitionists." End quote. Now, here's the comical part. We found this review on restaurantguru.com. It turns out that the hot buffet at La Trapeze was quite something. And that's how my next two guests ended up at this club. Sara and Kristen are writers and journalists and thought it would be an interesting experience and a great subject for an article to check out the much-hyped buffet at La Trapeze.
3: The moment we walked into the club, we knew we were a little bit in over our heads. You know, you have this vision of what it might be. I had sort of these high hopes that it would be sort of out of the movie Eyes Wide Shut. It was very seedy. The folks in the place were not anyone you would ever want to witness performing the acts that we saw them performing.
6: The only reason I was able to convince my lovely friend, Kristen, to go on this adventure with me is because I had promised her, I was like, don't worry about it. We're not actually going to see anybody having sex. It's behind this sort of, you know, concealed area. So we'll never see any nudity or sex. And lordy, lordy, that was not true at all. It was just rows and rows of people just enthusiastically going at it. There was actually no hot buffet. The hot buffet had been dismantled by the New York Health Department, and for good reason. My main takeaway about the experience was just how incredibly unsexy it was. It was a thoroughly disgusting place.
3: There was like a disco ball hanging out, like in the center room. There was leather couches, mirrors. Leather.
6: That was not real leather, honey, and you know it.
3: (laughs) And there was carpeting, which was baffling to us. We both just kind of broke down laughing because out of discomfort, you know, for the graphic nature of
1: it, but then also, you know, how run down it was. I asked them about the members that were inside the club.
6: We did speak to a lot of people, primarily because at a certain point in the evening, the manager came over and, uh, you know, we're sitting there, we're fully clothed and not looking particularly enthused with the environment. And, uh, and the manager's like, hey, would you ladies like some fresh pop popcorn? And, you know, it, it was extraordinary how just that that kind gesture And he gave us the popcorn. And then as soon as that happened, everybody came over to talk to us. It was a true icebreaker, I have to say. But people were primarily talking about just like the community itself and the the bygone era when it was a bit more glamorous. And everybody was quite aware of the fact that the place had gone to seed. There was no um, illusions there. They were all very kind. I have to say they were extremely nice people. There were some grumpy people and there was that gross pervert. What do you expect in a a swingers club? But Kristen, I don't know what do you think.
3: I think it was the same. I mean, everyone was very open. I think fundamentally everybody was there looking for connection. I would say, you know, the clientele was like kind of hippie couples who really saw this as a spiritual journey. They were in the minority. The majority were single men who had brought like hired prostitutes. Every man needs to go in with a woman.
6: There was that one cranky swinger that said, you know, this is a bad night to be here. It's 90 percent paid. Look at that woman. She's paid.
3: It was a lot of like desperate men who brought in these sort of hired guns, abandoned them and then started hitting on the women that were there who were not paid. And so it was deeply uncomfortable for that as well.
1: I think it's so interesting, the part about the paid aspect. I didn't consider that. And no one has said that. That's something you feel like that night in particular, there
6: was a lot of that. This gentleman who was sitting there in his saggy underwear eating the potato chips, he was quite cranky because he said, this is a bad night to be here. It's 90% paid. And then he kind of pointed out all the different women who were quote unquote paid. So yeah, that must make up a a big percentage of the people who frequent those places.
3: And to add to that, you know, when we We're first about to go into La Trapeze. There was a man standing outside trying to get in because he didn't have a female partner who kind of asked us, hey, do you need a man tonight, you know, to come in with you? And we declined. But what we heard was that when men wanted to go into La Trapeze, they hired women, but they tried to pay as little as possible. That also added to the air of the place, you know, because it was a lot of very bored, paid sex workers just kind of hanging out. And not engaged.
1: In this press conference, I'm going to tell you guys what exactly the witness alleged. She alleged that her partner she was there with, like there was a wall where there was like bulletin boards or something, and that they found information about a couple who wanted to swing out in Massapequa and that they were kind of blindly found them that way. Do you recall seeing anything like that? Or like, Does it seem like it was a vibe where it would have something like that because it was sort of not super elegant?
6: I can imagine that would be there. But I will say the only thing they were mostly concerned about was Kristen tried to take a picture because there was a a very funny uh, sign that said, uh, you know, you must have covering over your genitals when you go to the buffet. And as soon as that camera came out, it was like, no, 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 put that away. No cameras here. So I did not see. Did you see anything like that, Kristen?
3: I don't know when they were alleging they saw the wall, but I have a feeling with digital cameras and social media and all of that, the wall probably went away. You know, it was probably sort of an analog way to connect, whereas they didn't need it by the time we got there.
1: Yeah, because this would have allegedly occurred in 1996. And it makes perfect sense that you would just blindly go without meeting the couple because that's what they're saying happened too. I talked to the same attorney who held this press conference, and he also said that he's learning, you know, the male member of this couple who went to the house was apparently a New York City police officer at the Brooklyn Precinct. He's also saying that, like, a lot of cops frequented La Trapeze. Did you get the feeling that, like, people in all professions were there? Or was it, like, a more blue collary feeling?
3: I didn't get at all the sense of sort of office... Guys or were professionals in the sense of like wearing suits to work every day and having high power positions. It definitely got the sense of like middle class couples who used to have a great time doing this in their earlier years and were trying to grasp onto the last threads of it, as well as yeah, sort of blue collar men who were looking for a good time who were obviously very lonely in their own lives.
0: Are you too
1: surprised to hear about, like, a possible connection to this serial killer? You don't think, if you're going to be a swinging couple, like, you you describe a very welcoming, warm community, and it's like, one of them was a serial killer in there, and that's terrifying.
6: That is why I'm surprised, because it it truly felt like a Canasta group, only, you know, not Canasta, instead it's uh, having indiscriminate sex. It would never occur to me that there would be a connection with this case. I am surprised, very surprised. They just seem like just sort of kind of a little bit down on their luck people who want to have a little bit of fun on the weekend.
3: I take a slightly differing approach to that question. I could totally imagine a serial killer being there. Obviously, I'm really leaning heavily on my own imagination. There are no facts or data to support that, but it was such a mysterious mix of people. You know, as two women who don't come from that world It definitely gave us insight into what might motivate you to be a part of it. But I think there are many reasons why you might go to a club for group sex. And I think, you know, whatever the makeup of the profile is of a serial killer, if it means a loner, if it means, you know, someone who has a hard time with organic social connections, I could totally see how you would come to a place like this to try and get those connections in a different way.
1: It was a different world inside Le Trapeze. And one of the things that interests me the most is the alleged clientele of NYPD officers, especially in light of paid sex workers being there as a way for single men to gain entry. It does sound like the humans would fit into the clientele of middle-class couples if they did in fact frequent this club. And in 1996, when this allegedly occurred, a bulletin board for advertisements made sense compared to the world of social media that we live in now. Even Craigslist didn't expand beyond San Francisco until the year 2000. So connections had to have been made more analog. Going back to the witness statement, there is another part that really stood out. If the witness is correct in identifying Karen Vergata as the girl that was with them that night, it brings up a bunch of questions. Mainly, how and when did her partner pick up Karen? We know that on Valentine's Day of 1996, Karen Vergata called her dad from jail. It was his birthday and she never missed it. The witness placing this incident around Valentine's Day 1996 and describing Karen Vergata sitting in an unnatural position in the back seat when Karen had recently had a car accident all line up, but when and how she left jail, we do not know. This did trigger a memory of an interview I did a few years back with a former New York City Police Department officer. He has since passed away, but I would like to still honor his anonymity, hence the voice change on the interview. During our conversation, he alleges that police officers and shady lawyers would get women out of jail, and then the girls would owe them. Listen. Let me tell you something. Basically, these guys would go
6: to, like, psychiatric wards, psych centers, girls that got arrested for DWY and stuff, and... They would say, we'll represent you for, for nothing and stuff. And those are girls that wind up in the sex parties that you're talking about. I have plenty of girls that that happened to that I became friends with after. And they would tell me, you know, how do you know this guy whatever? And I'm like, yeah, I just got arrested. I'm like, what? And this fucking guy bailed you out. And now, now you got to for, like, you know what I mean? But like, this is what's going on
4: out there.
1: It's a pretty explosive accusation, and I asked John
0: Ray about it.
4: That sounds consistent with what our witness is saying. Did he lure her into the car by you know uh, getting her out of the jail that night or I don't know did he lure her in by drugs? I don't know, but it, it, apparently cocaine was a constant presence in that relationship. So I don't know what was used. I don't know how that exactly happened.
1: Whether it was in fact Karen Vergata, referenced in the witness statement, or another young woman down on her luck, it sure feels like she was taken advantage of. The image of her being left at the alleged Hewerman house, clearly distressed, quoting from the affidavit, quote, "'I saw the face of the woman, I believe to be Karen, "'up against a window at the house. "'She looked scared. "'I had a sense that she was calling for help. "'The woman I believed to be Karen "'suddenly ran outside naked, and ran about by the garage. I felt uneasy that we left without the woman." End quote. Terrifying. The witness states that when she saw Karen Vergata's picture on the television, she recognized her as the woman who was with her that fateful night of swinging at the alleged Huerman home. Quote, "...I was shocked and deeply sorrowful for having left her behind at Hewerman's house. I told John Ray of these things because I needed to speak with him so that Karen would not be left behind again, end quote. It is interesting that the media coverage of the Rex Hureman arrest didn't trigger her memory or compel her to come forward, but it was the Karen Vergata identification that connected things for her. Again, if this was in fact Karen Vergata and it was the Hureman house, then maybe the police can find evidence of this incident in the mountains of materials collected during the search of the Hureman home. The witness has also identified her male partner, and perhaps he can corroborate the story with the police. Of course, the other rather consequential allegation in the witness statement is in regards to Asa Ellerup, Rex Hurman's wife. The affidavit states, quote, Asa told me words to the effect that Rex brought her from her country and that everything she had, he has given to her. She said that she was lucky that he was rich She said she was also afraid of Rex. I do not know if she was truthful. I also saw two large seashells on a shelf in the house. I recall thinking that they were like shells from the country where I had grown up. I asked Asa if she had friends from my country. I do not remember what she replied. I had also asked Asa if she wished me to perform sex upon her, but she said that she didn't wish that, end quote. These statements do not incriminate Asa there is nothing illegal about sexual relations between consenting adults. Even if Asa was aware of Rex Eurman and maybe her own proclivities for swinging or sex workers, that does not mean she was aware of the crimes Rex is alleged to have committed, mainly the murders of three of the women found along Ocean Parkway. That said, a witness placing Karen Vergata, one of the Ocean Parkway victims in Asa's home around the time Karen went missing, is of course very serious. Again, we did reach out to Asa Ellerup's attorney, Robert Macedonio, as well as Michael Brown, Rex Huerman's attorney. Neither have provided us with a comment at the time of this recording. There's a lot to this press conference that proved to be newsworthy, but the fact that Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison was standing side-by-side with John Ray was just as big a shocker as any of the allegations within the witness statements. Next... What does this say about the task force and the investigation? When John Ray's office sent out a press release announcing his October 18th press conference, there was one sentence that got everyone's attention. The last one, quote, Police Commissioner Rodney Harrison will attend the press conference, end quote. John Ray has held many a press conference in the case of the Long Island serial killer. Always interesting, but often rallying against the Suffolk County Police Department. To have Rodney Harrison in attendance was sending a clear and different message, and John Ray addressed it head on at the start of the press conference.
4: Good afternoon, everybody. We're here today because new information has arisen in this case from witnesses who were so far unknown before I talk about them first I want you to be aware that here stands a commissioner as you know with me and up until now we have not made it known to the public that we have been working together on this case steadily since the time that I came to know Commissioner Harris a year ago February up until that point The police department was very resistant to receiving any kind of evidence or information from my office. That all changed significantly when Commissioner Harris stepped in and we began to collaborate. That collaboration has had fruit, evidence and information which we have shared together and with the police department and therefore with the task force. I'm very pleased that Commissioner Harrison has seen fit to open his mind and, and to do what I'm suggesting has been done, contrary to all those who have come before him. He's the right man for the job, and he's done his job well. I have stood as a civilian beacon to the people who are involved in this case to come and talk where they didn't want to approach the police out of fear, apprehension, out of a natural distaste for the police department because of the work these people were in.
1: The commissioner, for his part, stood quietly by John Ray as John laid out the evidence and spoke up at the end of the press conference.
2: When I first came into this position, I sat down with John Ray, myself and the members of the task force to have that conversation about information that he may have and and let's make sure we're putting a a dragnet out there regarding any information that's coming to us. That's why I'm gonna continue my partnership with John. And if people have a reluctancy to come forward to law enforcement, and they wanna go to John Ray, then it's important that we take this information and then we follow forward with uh, furthering the investigation. The creation of the task force got us into a good place, but we also added two more investigators to the task force to take this type of information in and to pursue it, to follow it, to see if this is credible. I'm sure everybody can understand there's a judicial process still going on. I will reassure everybody here, we are not done with this investigation.
1: Most of us who have been following this case were wondering how this newly revealed partnership would play with the district attorney, Ray Tierney. And well, shortly after the press conference, the district attorney's office issued their statement. Quote, without providing any advance notice to the prosecutors pursuing this case in court or the Gilgo Beach Homicide Task Force members investigating these murders day in and day out, we watched today's press conference not knowing what was going to be reported We will continue to investigate this case through the grand jury process and not through press conferences. No private attorneys are or have ever been members or agents of the task force. Any citizen who believes that they have relevant evidence regarding the Gilgo Beach investigation should report it to the investigative agencies that comprise the task force. Any attorneys representing victims or their families by definition have a conflict of interest and should not be a part of the investigation potential witnesses should not be reaching out to a private attorney with an interest in the outcome of the case, end quote. Wow. So not only was the district attorney not looped in, neither were Suffolk County homicide detectives on the task force. And we have it on good authority that Rodney Harrison's deputy commissioner was also out of the loop. It seems that Rodney Harrison kept this close to his vest. Why? Only he knows. But I did ask John Ray what he thought of the DA's statement.
0: Did you know that the DA didn't know? I mean, you probably saw the DA's response to it.
4: Yeah, I saw that. You know, I wasn't involved in the intramural part of the task force at all. I've had a good relationship with Ray Tierney all along, paid him many, many compliments for the work he's doing. I supported him, and I still do. As I sit here now, I don't know of any conflict whatsoever.
0: It surprised me because they seemed, you know, with all the progress they've made with the arrest, it seemed like a united front.
4: It didn't sound to me from the press release by Ray Tierney that he was all that upset with the substantive reason for the the press conference, nor with the evidence, but rather upset with his not having approved of the press conference. It was maybe an off-the-cuff opinion that somehow I shouldn't be gathering evidence because I might have a conflict just isn't the law at all. And I have no conflict whatsoever. I'm doing the same thing that everybody else is doing, you know, for the victims. And that is to find the killers and find the evidence regarding the killers. There's no conflict. So I don't know more about that.
0: I believe Rodney Harrison must have a reason for having kept it to himself. And only he knows what that is, but it's probably a pretty good one.
4: Yeah, I do know this. There was a whole contingent of people from the old guard, probably some of them in the DA's office as well, the investigators, that is, the police investigators. And there's no better evidence of that than that the police department, through their chief detective on the case, put up resistance to my obtaining the audio tapes of the 911 calls. They resisted for years, They fought me through several cases and two appeals. Ultimately, they lost, which didn't sit well with some of them. You could tell that there were people who don't like that kind of civilian interaction with the evidence. And so those contingents still probably exist in the police department. And I imagine Rodney's had his struggles with that. So many years of delay and so much police obfuscation and outright lies about what the evidence entailed. It came time for somebody like Rodney to step up and try something radically different, something new and something productive. Can you doubt that it was productive? There's four people who came forward in less than a month. There are more people coming forward, and I haven't released them yet. But we're not stopping. We're doing exactly what you heard Rodney say. I'm still on the civil case that exists, and I'm in it representing the victims' families. And I won't stop. And... Keep in mind this, there's a certain unwise part of the district attorney's press release in this regard. We're dealing with a unique kind of crime. You know, crimes are all evil, but crimes of dealing with a sexual nature are vastly different than any other kind of crime because they involve the ultimate destruction of the integrity of women the ultimate destruction of a woman's rights to control her body and, shall I say, spirit as well. And in that kind of a case, we know that when women get abused, as many of these sex workers were, when women get humiliated, insulted, as they were, including by the police department in this case, back in the day, they have a tendency not to come forward. That's what PTSD is all about. They don't want to cooperate with law enforcement. They don't trust law enforcement. They fear law enforcement. And unlike in other cases, therefore, the the key witnesses very often are never heard from, including those who are victimized themselves. So the police department just doesn't have sometimes the attraction necessary to gather up that kind of evidence, no matter how hard they worked and no matter how good their work may have been. So, They want to turn to somebody else, and that's where I come in. By saying that the attorneys have a conflict, it's an announcement from law enforcement to say to the people, don't use another avenue to reveal what has happened to you. That's a mistake. That's unwise. And hopefully, better wisdom will prevail. But meanwhile, I will continue. There appears
1: to be a fracture between Commissioner Harrison and D.A. Tierney. So I reached out to Suffolk County legislator Rob Trotta to get a sense of how this is playing out in law enforcement and political circles.
0: As far as the task force, right, we've been hearing about this Long Island Serial Killer Task Force. Who is actually in charge of that?
5: Ultimately, the district attorney oversees every bit of evidence. They look at how you get evidence. He issues the search warrants. He issues the subpoenas. Ultimately, the district attorney coordinates everything.
0: So in some ways, like, the district attorney doesn't necessarily need to be working hand-in-hand with the commissioner.
5: No, not not at all, because a task force can be put together by the district attorney and say, you know, put my cops in it, put some cops in it, put some, you know, state troopers in it. He ultimately takes control over it because he decides what they look at and what they don't look at.
0: Based on that stuff, as far as Rodney Harrison doing this press conference with John Ray, do you interpret that as sort of like a political move?
5: I think it's definitely a political move. Rodney Harrison's days are numbered in Suffolk County. He's getting fired. He's gone. There's a new county executive coming in. They never keep a commissioner. He's going to be let go. He's looking for a job. So what better way to get himself on TV and, and make himself relevant?
1: Okay, so some insight here. In Suffolk County, the county executive is the highest executive position in the county. If we were to dumb it down, imagine it as the president of the county. It is an elected position. They work with the county legislators who are also elected and the county's district attorney who is also elected. And the county executive appoints key positions, including police commissioner and chief of police. The current county executive, Steve Ballone, whom listeners may remember from past episodes, is termed out. So a new county executive is definitely coming in. Commissioner Rodney Harrison is a Steve Ballone appointee. District Attorney Ray Tierney won his election very much on the platform of reform and as an adversary of the past regimes, including
5: Steve Ballone.
0: What is the perception of Tierney?
5: He's sort of no-nonsense. He's non-political. He's never been involved in a political party. He's a registered blank. So he's not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. And he never has been. If you go back in his history, he's he's always been uh, a registered blank. He's a, 30 years of prosecution under his belt. He's the real deal, whereas, you know, the former district attorney, the former police commissioner, you know, Tim ciney was like a 35-year-old guy who was totally political connected.
0: Same question for Rodney Harrison. What is the overall feeling about him as a leader?
5: I'm not a fan.
0: What do you think this shakeup that's coming, or, you know, the shakeup that maybe already began with this sort of, press conference and Tierney's response. Like, what do you think it means for the investigation?
5: I think it means that, you know, Harrison's probably got another month or two when he's gone, and it really won't matter. You know, he'll become totally irrelevant.
0: And that is because the DA really holds the power and controls the task force. Yeah,
5: especially since an arrest was made. I mean, all the investigative work now and all the background work has to be approved with subpoenas and search warrants by the district attorney. I mean, they're now coordinating the case, as they were probably in the, from the beginning.
0: Tierney and Harrison, did they ever see eye to eye? Or was Tierney just like this is just another of one of Ballone's guys?
5: Of course.
0: So there's no trust there?
5: No. The police commissioner meeting with a defense lawyer, you know, suggesting that, you know, if you have information, go to this defense lawyer. This makes no logical sense.
1: As far as press conferences go, this one was a doozy and it's been great unpacking it. After we finished recording this episode, Rodney Harrison resigned from his position as Suffolk County Police Commissioner. Next episode, we will keep you up to date on all the news related to this case, as well as dig in a little deeper as to why that crucial tip that identified Rex Furman to law enforcement was missing for 10 years. And remember, if you haven't had a chance to listen to our early episodes on this case, please make a moment to do so. It'll help you get a sense of the players in this story as we break down what may have gone wrong. For all things Long Island serial killer, keep it right here. Please subscribe to get the latest on the Rex Eurman case, as well as further insights on the other victims and cold cases getting new energy in light of this arrest. If you would like to contribute to our story, or if you know Rex Eurman, please send an email to us at unraveledtips at gmail.com, or you can contact me directly on Instagram. At Alexis Linkletter. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers and writers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and myself, Alexis Linkletter. Executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Our editor is Caitlin Cleveland. Lisa Ribakoff is our associate producer. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy listening to. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.